I'm Will McHenry, the Program Associate at Ponars Eurasia, and with us today is Josh Tucker, a professor of politics at New York University. Josh, thank you so much for joining us for this Ponars podcast. In a recent publication in Comparative Politics, you and your co-authors presented a theoretical framework for thinking about authoritarian and competitive authoritarian regimes um, and how regimes responded to online opposition. Can you tell us a bit about that? Sure, thanks, and it's a pleasure to be here. Um, We argued that when these types of regimes face online opposition, they actually have a large menu of options from which they can choose and different ways to respond. In the paper, what we do is to try to put some structure on this is we break this down into three basic categories. The first category is that they can respond offline. So you can face opposition online from bloggers, from people using social media. You can choose to respond to that by doing things in the offline world, such as changing legal infrastructure, such as changing ownership of social media companies, ranging to sort of more uh, more physically threatening you know, individual bloggers with arrest, imprisonment, and even, you know, and even physical harm. So that's one set of options. You can respond to the online threat without doing anything in the online world. Within the online world, then, there's actually two other classes of ways that you can respond. So we can think about online responses that try to restrict access to information and online responses that try to shape the conversation online. So online responses that try to restrict access to information, that's classically what we would think of historically as censorship, right? You want people not to encounter information. And when we think about this, we think about, you know, China being sort of the big leader in this, first with the kind of great firewall of China, but then also with all this, uh, you know, all this attention China has has put on sort of surgically removing individual posts online that are deemed you know, not to be satisfied by the censors. So this would this is you try to make it so that people don't encounter information. So there's all sorts of theories here going from sort of very harsh measures like just, or very sort of blunt measures like turning the internet off during a crisis, which leads to all sorts of opposition for other reasons, right? To these very sort of precise surgical measures of trying to use machines and trying to use humans to pull down, you know, only very specific content that, that meets, it crosses a threshold in, in some category that you care about. But there's a third option out there, which historically, in the time we started this project, had gotten less attention. And that third option was to try to actually reshape the conversation online. Now, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections and all the discussion about information warfare and electoral manipulation, this all fits into this category of not that you're going to prevent people from seeing things online, but you're going to try to try to affect what they actually do see online. And This was something that actually has been more pioneered by the Russian government in terms of this active intervention to try to shape the online conversation. Now, to be very clear, when regimes are choosing from these options, trying to shape the online conversation, there are very benign versions of this, right? The original promise of e-government was that it was going to bring a meeting place where citizens could meet governors, you know, in much closer proximity and have these personal exchanges and the rulers could hear from the ruled and it could break down these kind of barriers. And so in some ways, this trying to shape conversation when you have ministers who go online and talk to individual citizens, this is the kind of thing that, you know, progressive reformers about government want to see more of. But of course, again, here, there are the more nefarious versions, right? So you have trolls 
who are sort of humans who go online with a political agenda to try to shape the conversation. You can also have what are known as bots, which are automated accounts, which are run by algorithms that do things to try to shape the conversation online. And then you can have a sort of nebulous in-between category of cyborgs, which are accounts that produce some human-generated content, but also use algorithms to produce content. And what we've learned uh, as we've spent more time studying this and what we've learned in the aftermath of the 2016 election is that these kinds of tools, while they can be used just to harass people over commercial disputes or over, you know, disputes having to deal with, you know, sexism and gamer in online games, they can also be harnessed for, for explicit political purposes. In your Ponar's memo for this conference, you report on work you've been doing at the NYU lab on activity by Russian bots. Can you tell us a bit about what you found and classified these bots? Right. So the so the sort of challenge to this was once we got to this world where we're like, okay, we think this trying this online engagement is a viable option, and we have these suspicions that this is what is going on, that this is part of the Russian government's strategy for dealing with online opposition, is to change the tenor of the conversation online. So then the question is, how do you go about studying this, right? So one way you can study this, and what's been done in part in China, is you can rely on leaks. You can get people who leak documents, leak instructions, leak the num names of accounts that are actually accounts that are sometimes called sock puppets, like they're working for the government or something like that. That's one way to go about doing that. Another way, which is you know, sort of come out more recently, is that like in hearings in the United States, Twitter has agreed has actually turned over uh, thousands of account names that they have identified as Russian trolls during the 2016 election. They gave those accounts to Congress. That was made public as part of congressional testimony. So you can; those are two ways you can go about trying to study these activity. But what do you do if you don't have those? Or what if you do if you don't want to work with leaked data and you don't have publicly recorded data? So we worked really hard on this in the, in the SMAP lab at NYU. And the first thing we did was we built up a classifier to try to identify using machine learning um, which accounts were bots. And so what we did was we used something called a supervised method of machine learning. So in a, under, there's two types of ways of machine learning. In one, there are techniques where the machines do all the learning of the classification, and, there's, and that's called unsupervised learning. And that's something you might hear of called topic modeling and things like that, where you just sort of say, split this into 50 topics and the machines do it. But then there's also things called supervised learning, which is essentially you show a machine something and you say, look, there's two classes here. In our case, the classes would be accounts that are bots and accounts that are not bots. Here's a bunch of examples of accounts that are bots. Here's a bunch of examples of accounts that are not bots. And then you use the machine learning to see, can they learn what distinguishes those two in a way that's accurate enough to go to a whole bunch of other cases that you didn't have in what's called this training data set um, to start classifying which accounts are bots and which accounts are not bots. Now, the interesting thing is, so we set out to do this within the context of Russian. We wanted Russian language accounts that were bots. So there's not like a repository of these things. So what we ended up doing was we, at the height of this, we had 50 different undergraduates working for us in Moscow who we trained and we said, look, here are characteristics of what bot accounts look like. Here are things that they do. We went through training sessions with them or we went through accounts and we said, is this a bot account? Is this not a bot account? We built our own software to be able to take tweets that we had collected as part of our collections on Russian politics and sort of display them to these coders in a way that kind of resembled what a Twitter page would look like. So they could see multiple tweets simultaneously. We built some software to do that. And then we had these undergraduates in Moscow code thousands of accounts as either bots or not bots. And on the basis of this, we were able to build these classifiers, which turned out to be remarkably accurate in predicting which accounts were bots. And the way you test this is you hold out some of your training data. So you have some data that you know the answer to. You train the data on the rest of the model, 
and then you go look and see how it does predicting the things you already know the answer to. So that was the first thing we did. Um, and we published a paper on that in a journal called Big Data on how that method works. Um, but then one of the interesting things we discovered in our early time poking around these bots, remember we're motivated for this project because we want to study uh, we want to study how authoritarian and competitive authoritarian regimes like Russia respond to online opposition. So we were like, we're going to find these bots because we're like, okay, it's about politics. There's bots. That will be how the Russian government responds. Well, the big thing that we learned early on in this project is that if you go looking for bots in a country, even a competitive authoritarian regime like Russia, right, you're not guaranteed that all the bots you find are actually going to be pro-Kremlin bots, let alone setting the aside the very difficult question of if we find pro-Kremlin bots, who's creating those bots, whether it, we, that we can't tell. But it turns out they're not even all pro-Kremlin bots. And what we discovered was there were bots in our collection that were actually pro-opposition, sharing lots of content from Navalny. There were bots in our collection that were pro-Ukraine and pro-Kiev that were sharing all sorts of things having to do with the Ukrainian side of the Ukrainian conflict in Russian language, uh, in Russian language Twitter. And we also discovered that the modal category actually were these neutral bots that were spreading content that was neither pro-Kremlin nor anti-Kremlin nor pro-Kiev. And what, you know, we haven't fully investigated this, but from our observational indi indications of this, the vast majority of these neutral bots are sharing news headlines. So these are probably bots that are involved in a kind of different process of trying to, you know, we suspect they may be trying to manipulate search engine algorithms to make, have, have things be trending topics and things appearing popular and things like that. Um, so that was the first real, that was, you know, the first really big finding. And it took us a long time to be able to build a classifier that would be able to predict the political orientation of the bots in conditional on having decided that an account was a bot. But we've now been able to do that with sufficiently high levels of precision that we're really confident about this. Um, and that's going to, that work will be forthcoming in a paper that's going to be in a special issue of Sage Open on social media and politics. What are the most interesting things you've learned to date? about the behavior of these Russian language bots. Well, I, all right, so I guess maybe I jumped the gun on that a little bit. Um, I think the most interesting thing we've learned are first, that they're not all pro-Kremlin bots. Yeah. So it's really important that if you wanna study this sort of thing, if you are interested in this framework we talked about, and you wanna study online engagement, you can't just use a bot detector and assume that the bots you find in a country are actually spreading the pro-regime message. So I think that's super interesting and it's an important takeaway lesson. Um, the second thing that we learned um, that was, you know, the second thing we learned that was really interesting was, you know, the presence of and the relative presence of these different types of things. So what have we learned when we looked at, when we looked at them right now about what, they, about what they've been doing? One thing that's interesting is, as I said, these neutral bots seem to be the most prevalent and these who are sort of in these news headlines. And if you take from that, what it's done is sort of flipped our orientation a little bit and how we think about the, what the purpose of these bots are. So... In general, when you talk, especially now that everybody's talking about this in the aftermath of the 2016 U.S. elections, when you talk about bots and trolls, um, people tend to think that the target of these bots are humans, right? The goal of a Russian bot is to convince a, a human being of X, right, that Donald Trump would be a better candidate than Hillary Clinton, that, Vladimir, that Russia doesn't deserve to have sanctions on it, you know, fill in the blank, whatever you think the goal is. We think from this sort of prevalence of these neutral bots, um, that one of the goals of bots is to fool other algorithms. So essentially, we think what may be going on is you have these algorithmically controlled accounts that don't look that real at all, that a human could tell very quickly was not that real. And so maybe they're not trying to fool humans at all. 
Maybe they're just trying to fool other algorithms, and in particular, these search optimization algorithms. Again, we don't know this is the case, and actually, we don't even really know um, what the difference is when people encounter bots as opposed to when they encounter humans. This is new research that we want to be doing, is like giving people information produced by bots and produced by humans, and seeing, you know, do they have different, do this have different effects on what how people update their own beliefs on things. We did find, um, and we're just very early on in this kind of in this research. So the final paper from this kind of arc of going from the theoretical framework to how do we classify, how do we find bots, how do we classify their political orientation is okay. Now that we can identify these pro Kremlin bots as well as the pro opposition bots, can we test some hypotheses about how they might use them strategically? So one thing we've seen in just some original uh, descriptive statistics in this regard is that. Um, we definitely saw that the pro-Kremlin bots were more active and became relatively more active than the other bots right around the time of the Ukrainian crisis. So it does appear that either there was some capacity that could be cranked up on the side of the sort of pro-Kremlin bots, or that there was a concerted effort to produce more bots at that point in time to get the bots out there working. Again, our research, just to be very clear, says nothing. We don't know anything about the source of these pro Kremlin bots. We don't know if they're being, if they're, you know, straight out being run by the Russian government. We don't know if they're being run by people who are getting instructions from the Russian government but are not part of the Russian government. We don't know if they're just being run by patriotic Russians who want to build bots to defend the government because they genuinely like the government. Nor do we know if they are being run by, um, by essentially economic enterprises that want to attract business for these bots to do other things. And by showing that they can get the bots involved in politics, they actually, it's a way, it's like a calling card. It's a way of proving, hey, we're pretty good at this. Look what we were able to do. We're able to, you know, this thing that we can track, Yandex trending topics, look, we were able to manipulate that. Why don't you hire us to manipulate things, you know, to help your product? We have no idea where these things are coming from. So, but there are a lot of them out there. And in our collections of Russian political Twitter, we did find that for most of the, once we got out of the sort of pre-Ukraine crisis period, there were lower levels of usage of pre-Ukraine crisis, but post-Ukraine crisis, in the modal day in our Russian political Twitter data set, we would see 50% of the tweets that were being produced being produced by accounts that our classifier had classified as bots. So there was a lot of this bot activity in Russian domestic political Twitter. On that note, what are the longer term goals of this research project and what are you going to be doing next? Right. So the plan next within the Russian context is, as I said a moment ago, to take all this work that we've done being able to classify these bots. We have a whole slew of hypotheses about how we think the government and the opposition might want to use um, bots as part of political strategy. And we're going to try to essentially test now that we have data on this to see, does the data that we've uncovered to support any of these hypotheses, right? Can we learn a little bit more? There's some different theoretical arguments about why you might, you know, how you might use these bots and what might be the purpose of them. Can we actually learn something about that? So that's the final sort of arc of this in the Russian context, um, having worked so hard on finding these yeah. things and classifying these things. However, what this, is, what this research agenda has done for us is convinced us that there actually are ways to go about getting classifications retrospectively of bots. And I say retrospectively because there's been this fantastic work by people at Indiana University coming up with these tools for classifying active Twitter accounts as whether they're, well, the likelihood that they're a bot. It's, there was one version of it called bot or not, now they have a version called botometer. Um, but as, as academic scholars and researchers, we often wanna go 
take not just measure things in the present moment. We want to go back in time and be able to study a period of time and study what was happening. Also, there's a big emphasis in, uh, in social sciences now on replicable research. And so what our method allows you to do is it allows you to have a collection of data that you've collected. And just to be very clear, all the data that we have for this project is data that was made publicly available. None of this was given to us by Twitter. We collected it using the API. It's all based on settings on accounts that were public. So this is all data that's in the public domain. But we have large collections of data. And now we want to be able to sort of waltz into this question that everybody's talking about, which was, what was the role, you know, what were these automated accounts, both the bots and if we can get to the trolls, and that's a whole other classification yeah. problem, but what is, you know, what were these bots and trolls doing in the course of the 2016 election? So I'm very pleased that we were recently awarded a National Science Foundation grant to essentially take the technology we developed within Russia and now import it to the 2016 election and to try to do a real deep dive and systematic study as opposed to just little snapshots of, oh, we saw this, we saw that. And we have a whole bunch, of, again, a bunch of hypotheses that we want to test where these bots used to attack candidates more than they were used to defend candidates. Were they more used to talk about issues as the, or were they more used to talk about particular candidates? Were they used at even levels over the course of the election campaign or were they ramped up around debates, around primaries? You know, if we can get there, I'm, I don't know if we can, you know, were they targeted at swing states as opposed to being yeah. targeted at all sorts of states? And we have lots of anecdotal snapshots about it. And we have lots of people who are willing to make very big claims about how these types of bots and automated accounts were used in the course of the election. But we want to do a, you know, a deep systematic dive. And we have in our collection, we have you know, 650 million tweets that mention Donald Trump. We have, you know, a couple hundred million tweets that mention Hillary Clinton or their campaign yeah. slogans. You know, we have large collections of tweets about immigration, about the economy, about healthcare, And we can now, you know, take this technology. And simultaneously, we hope to learn more about the technology. Like, are the machines that we train to find bots in Russia, can you just plop them down in the U.S.? Does, do they work? Or do we have to go through this whole process again of starting with, 50 undergraduates, coding accounts, yeah. building it up, testing models, and, and these sorts of things. Fascinating. Josh, thank you so much for joining us for this Ponaris podcast. Great. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much.